Tonight we're wrapping up, because you could call it a mini-series, on what it means to look out and to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. When we look out and we pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're asking for is for everything wrong with our world uh, to be made right. See, when you look out on the world and when I look out on the world, I imagine that what you see is what I see. A world that is both beautiful and broken. It's not unlike a broken jigsaw puzzle scattered about a dining room table. Our world appears to be in the same shape as that broken puzzle, sort of disconnected and fragmented. We can ask, what's it going to take in order for us to be able to make uh, this broken puzzle piece whole? What's it going to take in order for what's broken to be put back uh, together again? We've said, we said, first of all, what we need to do is we need to be able to recognize the shape the puzzle's in, that it's broken. Um, we need to open our eyes and to pay attention and to make sure that we're seeing the world rightly. But that's not enough. It's not enough to simply see the mess. We also need to know what this broken puzzle, our broken world, is supposed to be like. We need an image, uh, the picture on the front of the box, which gives us directions, not by telling us, hey, do this and then do that and then do that, gives us directions by showing us what this broken puzzle adds up to, what it's supposed to look like when it's all fitting together. We need a biblically informed imagination. Well, having open eyes, having a biblically informed imagination, it's a critical first step, but we can go on from there. Right? Surveying the puzzle, surveying the box is not actually going to solve it. Right? It's not actually going to fix it. The second step is then showing up, sitting down at the table, sort of putting your hands on the puzzle itself, not walking away from the mess, but moving towards it. This is what we discussed last week when we said we need to, have, uh, to be globally and civically engaged. Jesus saying, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. But this brings us to tonight, sort of the third and final step, making connections, joining together, Uh, what has been separated, reconciling uh, what's been estranged. This often happens one piece at a time. If you like, you could say one person at a time. The passage that we're going to look at tonight, John 4, is really going to bring all of these steps uh, together. You could say all of these pieces together, I think, in a really remarkable way. Uh, It's a lengthy chapter. We're not going to read it straight through in one pass, but sort of take it sort of chunk by chunk, a little piece by piece, and we'll make comments uh, along the way. Before we throw it up there on the screen, um, or you pull it up on your phone, I'm going to pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us together. Uh, As we get ready uh, to look at your word, I pray that by your spirit, you'd help us to see what needs to be seen, to hear what needs to be heard, and to open our hearts and to receive, uh, to believe. We pray these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, the first thing that I want you to see tonight is Jesus' willingness to cross all sorts of lines, all sorts of boundaries, in order to bring good news to the poor. I want you to see that Jesus is willing to cross all sorts of lines in order to heal, to make whole again, broken people and broken communities. You see that Jesus is willing to cross all sorts of lines 
in order to find people who are outside of God's family and welcome them in. So take a look at me, uh, take a look at this with me now, how John chapter 4 begins. And when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. We're going to stop there for a second. John chapter 4 starts with Jesus in a place called Judea, wanting to go to a place called Galilee. But in verse 4 it says, he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, I don't expect you all to have this geography sort of imprinted on your mind, so I'm going to put it up here. Okay, if you look at this map, Judea is in the south. Galilee is right up there at the top in the north. And Samaria is smack dab uh, in the middle. Looking at this map, you might conclude, well, of course he had to pass through Samaria. He's in the south, he wants to go to the north, and you just go straight through. You have to pass through it. But what seems so obvious to you wasn't so obvious to folks back then. And here's why. The Jews in the south hated the Samaritans in the north, and the Samaritans in, in the north hated the Jews in the south. They hated each other so much that they would go out of their way to avoid coming into contact with one another. Some Jewish travelers making the route from Judea to Galilee would go all the way to the east and travel through what's their Perea, the Decapolis, and then cross back over. Okay. You could say, well, why? Like, what caused this rift between Jew and Samaritan? Why would people go so out of their way so as to avoid coming into contact with one another? Well, according to popular historian Taylor Swift, it used to be mad love, but now we got bad blood. Okay? Once upon a time, 1050 B.C. to 930 B.C., Israel was one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. But when King Solomon died in 930 B.C., the nation erupted in civil war and the nation split into two, north and south, not unlike our own civil war. The southern kingdom of Judah had its capital city in Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom of Israel had its capital in a city called Samaria. And for centuries, these two warring kingdoms, north and south, were at each other's throats. Again, historian Taylor Swift wisely notes, Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes, because baby, we got bad blood, right? When the two kingdoms went to war with each other, the people in the north couldn't worship in Jerusalem, right? It's now behind enemy lines. So consequently, they erected temples of their own and established their own places of worship. And along with the construction of new temples, they began worshiping other gods. So now the battle lines between north and south weren't just political. They became theological as well. They became religious. It wasn't just north versus south, but it became a battle between orthodox and pagan, those who worshipped the one true God and those who didn't. And you know what this looks like. Hindus killing Buddhists, Buddhists killing Muslims, Muslims killing Jews, Jews killing Christians, and Christians killing right back. Okay, we love to go to war over religion. And it's not just going to war with those of a different religion. We'll even fight with those who worship the same God. 
Right? You see this too. Protestants versus Catholics, Sunni versus Shiite, those who baptize babies versus those who don't. You know how heated these kinds of disputes uh, can get. If all of this weren't bad enough, it gets worse. Because in 722 BC, the Assyrians attack the northern kingdom of Israel and they win. The Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom and they nearly wipe its people off the map. Many of the Israelites in the northern kingdom are carried into exile. To say they're forcibly removed from their land and forced to live in a nation not their own. But those who aren't deported are forced to assimilate, to mix and to marry with uh, the Assyrians. And the children of that union, they're not Israelite and they're not Assyrian. They're Samaritan. At first, the Jews in the south hated the folks in the north for geopolitical reasons. And then they hated them for uh, religious reasons. But now they hate them for racial reasons, too. The Jews look down on the Samaritans as mutts, as half-breeds, as mudbloods, right? as having bad blood. The marriage between Jew and Samaritan, marriage between Jews and Samaritan was forbidden. And social interaction was strongly frowned upon. In fact, Jews believed that if you came into contact with a Samaritan, you are now ritually unclean. Now read verse 3 and 4 again. Okay, Jesus is in Judea, um, and he's on his way to Galilee. But, verse 4, he has to pass through Samaria. Jesus saying, I've got to go through Samaria. His friends are like, no, you don't. We can go right around. And he's like, no, but we do. We've got to go through. And here's why. Jesus is willing to cross all sorts of lines in order that all sorts of people can taste and see that God is good. He is willing to cross all sorts of lines so that no matter who you are or where you come from, you too can have good news preached to you. So that you too can know God's love and forgiveness and grace. Jesus is willing, first of all, to cross geographic boundaries. He's willing to cross lines drawn on a map or lines drawn in the sand. It doesn't matter. He is not limited to, constrained by, boundaries. He is willing to cross any border to bring good news to people on the other side. This is not just for Jews. It's for Samaritans as well. He's not limited to the UVM campus. He's willing to go to Champlain and St. Mike's as well, to Vermont Tech and CCV. This is not just for people in this neighborhood or on this side of the tracks. It's for them too, quite literally those on the other side. It's not just for Americans, right? It's for the world. Jesus is willing to go there wherever there is. He's willing to cross whatever imaginary lines we might set up. He's willing to cross geographical boundaries. But he's not just willing to cross our borders. He's willing to cross over and to talk to people on the other side of the aisle. 
Not just the other side of the political aisle, but the religious one as well. It's not that Jesus has forgotten the past. It's not like he doesn't know Jewish Samaritan history. He does. He knows it fully well. It's just that he's not going to let that get in the way of fruitful dialogue. It's also not that Jesus is wishy-washy about his faith. He doesn't know what he believes in. Right? He's playing footsie with the truth. On the contrary, <laughs> Jesus has stronger convictions than anybody else in this room. He knows what he believes. He knows who he is. It just so happens that his convictions make him very charitable with those who disagree with him, who are on the other side. The strength of his convictions make him very charitable. Jesus is not just willing to cross geographic borders or political borders or religious lines. He's willing to cross cultural and racial lines as well in order to bring good news and hope to the so-called other. Jesus is not a nationalist, and he's not a racist. And let me just make this point now. If you follow Jesus, you can't be a nationalist, and you can't be a racist either. You simply can't. We see in verses 3 and 4 that Jesus is willing to cross all sorts of lines and boundaries. You see that, right? But why? Did Jesus have to go through Samaria because he wanted to visit Six Flags Samaria? Is that what this is all about? No, of course not, right? Is he willing to cross all of these lines because he has to meet some VIP, right? A king or a priest or a president or prime minister? No. So why does he go? Well, look at verses 5 through 9 with me. Because what you're going to see is he goes, he's willing to cross all of these lines so that he can meet a woman collecting water by a well at the hottest part of the day. Verse 5 begins, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is 12 o'clock. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus had to pass through Samaria because there was a woman Jesus simply had to meet. Jesus has to go through Samaria because there's a woman he just simply has to meet. Now, in Jesus' day and age, women were treated like second-class citizens. They couldn't hold property. They couldn't vote. Their testimony was not valid in a court of law. Now, sadly, this is still true in many parts of the world. I spent about half a year in Bangladesh. It's true, you hardly saw any woman because it was believed there that their place is at home. Even in our egalitarian United States of America, right, women face gender inequality. There's pay gaps, occupational segregation, 
sexual harassment, and so on. But this is who Jesus has to see. A woman. A marginalized person. Someone often overlooked or ignored. Or, if seen, looked down upon. Jesus sees her. But not as we might see her. He doesn't see her as a stereotype. And he doesn't see her as a sex object. Jesus sees her as someone who is fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God and having just as much a right to hear the gospel as anybody else. He sees her collecting water, doing this menial job, and that at the hottest part of the day. He drinks, he asks for a drink of water. It's hot outside after all, noon, and he's wearied from his journey. And she responds, as you might suspect, what do you want to do with me? Why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Her guard is up for all of the reasons that I've just mentioned. Right? We went over a little bit of that Jewish-Samaritan history. She knows that too. So why are you talking to me? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, and I'm also a woman. Her guard is up for another reason that we haven't seen just yet. But in verses 17 and 18 of this passage, we learn that this woman has had five husbands, and the woman she's sleeping with right now is not her husband. Simply put, she's gotten around. This woman, by the well, has a reputation. Now, most people who are collecting water in this part of the world, they typically do it at the beginning of the day, right? At the break of dawn, when it's not all that hot outside. Nobody collects water at noon when it's like high in the sky and bearing down on you. Now, once upon a time, this woman probably did what everybody else is doing, going to collect water at the earliest part of the day. But in all likelihood, she probably got tired of all the other women at the well calling her names like slut and whore and tramp. She probably got tired of people pointing at her and saying, there she goes. Got tired of being the subject of scorn and shame. So now what does she do? Well, now she collects water at noon, at the hottest part of the day. When and where nobody can see her and make fun of her and reject her. So now you can better understand her question. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? What are you doing here, Jesus? And what do you want to do with me? This brings me to our next point. The reason why Jesus goes out of his way and crosses all sorts of lines is so that he can invite others into his heavenly family. The reason why Jesus is willing to cross all sorts of lines is so that he's able to draw them into fellowship with God and with others. As we like to say, to connect them with God and with others. To make strangers family and to make enemies friends. 
He goes out of his way in order to draw others in. Look at verses 13 and 15 with me. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him or her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now we could summarize all of these verses up in this way. Jesus didn't come to Samaria to get a drink. Jesus came to Samaria to give a drink. To offer good spiritual drink to a woman who is desperately thirsty. To make a broken person whole again. And not to shame her, but to save her. To offer this one a spring of welling water that will lead to eternal life. Look at verses 21 and 26. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. In fact, it's now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Woman, Jesus says, You may think yourself the least deserving person on earth to ever hear this message. Other people may think that about you too. Look at her. A Samaritan. A woman. A whore. Her life is a complete and utter mess. It's a disaster. And her religion is wacko. She doesn't know who God is. She doesn't worship him in the right place. She doesn't worship him in the right ways. But Jesus says in verse 23, the hour is coming. In fact, it's happening right this very minute. It's right now when true worshipers will worship God as Father in spirit and in truth. For he is seeking such people to worship him. Seeking them right now. Seeking you, O woman at the well. Seeking you here, RUF, Wednesday Night Fellowship. The woman responds, I know that the Messiah, the Christ, is coming. He will tell us all things. And Jesus says, you're right. And you're looking at him. I'm here. And I'm here for you. I didn't come here to scold you. I didn't come here to push you out. I came here. I had to pass through Samaria to meet you, to save you, to draw you in. This is the reason why Jesus crosses all sorts of lines. And it's the reason why we, his followers, should do the same. Right, being salt and light and crossing all these lines, 
going on missions trips or moving into a rough neighborhood, talking to people on the other side of the political aisle or on the other side of the tracks, befriending people who don't look like you or talk like you or think like you, having interfaith dialogue or cross-cultural engagement. The point of doing any of those things is not to stand out and to prove to your peers just how cool you are and how woke you are and how inclusive you are or how progressive you are. That's not the point of doing any of those things. The point of all of that is to introduce people to Jesus, to give them a glimpse, a taste of his kindness, his love, his friendship. Ultimately, the point of our going out and crossing those lines is to welcome others in, right? to introduce them to Jesus, to help them to know a God who sees them warts and all, but doesn't reject them or shame them, but who has died to save them who wants to quench their spiritual thirst, and who wants to wash them clean, who wants to welcome the outsider in, to turn the stranger into family and the enemy into a friend. This is who he is, and this is what he does. And if we're going to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is who we need to become, and this is the sort of things that we need to be doing as well. Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Well, look. Maybe pointing to all the townspeople coming up to them. Look. Here they come, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And the chapter then ends this way. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Connecting these dots, wrapping this up, the kingdom of God becomes more and more visible when we see people who are often overlooked or looked down upon when we leave our comfort zones, and when we invite others in. Jesus doesn't just see a woman at a well, someone overlooked and looked down upon. He sees her and a bunch of others like her with a biblical imagination. 
He pays attention to her for sure. Like he sees her with his eyes, but he doesn't just see her with his eyes. He sees her with a biblically informed imagination as someone who is dearly beloved, as someone who is made in the image of God. And when he sees her town, he doesn't just see a town. He sees a field ripe for harvest. What about you? Who do you see? Who are you attentive to? Who's on your radar? Who are you paying attention to? And when you look out at your campus, do you see just a bunch of sinners or pagans or a bunch of people who don't know their right hand from their left? Is that what you see? Do you just see cold, rocky, spiritual soil? Or do you see with a biblical imagination? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. God is at work on this campus and has been even before you showed up. And now he's inviting you to participate in the work that he started long ago. The field is ripe for harvest. Are you willing to leave your comfort zones? Are you willing to cross lines? To sit at the other table in the cafeteria? To cross lines, whether real or imaginary, in order to love people on the other side? To bless them? To invite them in? Jesus is inviting his disciples to do just that in verses 31 through 38. And the woman does this instinctively, if not reflexively. Because when she tastes and sees that God is good, where does she go? She goes back to her town, which for her was a place of discomfort, right? A place where she did not feel welcome. But she goes to them, not to point a finger, but to extend them an invitation, right? To welcome them in too. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now look, if you have not tasted and seen that God is good, it's very hard to invite others to taste and see that he is good. If you haven't tasted and seen for yourself. Right, as a mentor of mine would say, you cannot give away what you don't possess. But if you have tasted and seen, invite others to do the same. These are words of invitation Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Come, I've encountered this guy named Jesus who I think is really, really great. Do you want to meet him too? Look, if you look at my life, what you're going to see is a lot of brokenness. Right? I am not a perfect person. But I think I have found a perfect Savior. Do you want to meet him? I've tasted and seen that God is good. Do you want to come with me? Do you want to taste and see for yourself? Do you want to experience this as well? See, in the end, the townspeople receive the invitation, and they respond to it. They go. And they end up coming to the same conclusion as the woman, but not simply because she said so, but because someone invited them in. They tasted, they saw, they heard for themselves. You know, Michael Flake, who's going to be our speaker at our fall retreat this weekend, He often says the kingdom of God grows one person at a time. And odds are God has put that one more person in your life. The kingdom of God grows one person at a time. And odds are God's put that one more person in your life. Do you see him or her? Are you willing to go to him or her? 
Are you willing to invite them in? I pray you will. Let's pray now.